You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. tell you the truth is better than the guy on the end singing it. I'll just say that. And uh, that truth overcomes anything you've got. The answer is Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's way too simple. Well, I think we, we're way too complicated. And we look for answers in so many places that will never give us the answer we're looking for. And Jesus Christ is the answer. I'm thankful for that truth. And we'll see a little bit of that this morning in our text, John 12. And before we stand, let me just give you some background. John 12 is a, it's a pivotal New Testament text. Um, John 11, if you'll remember, uh, John 11, the, the very chapter before this, is the chapter that Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. One of the great texts in all the Bible, Lazarus come forth, Lazarus comes forth after being dead for four days, and, and it really got people talking. And this, this chapter, chapter 12, is just days before the Passover, and the Passover is that time of year that everyone comes together, all the Jews would come together, they'd come to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate the, the memory of, Jesus, of God delivering them from Egypt out of bondage. Well, this year is especially, there's a buzz. You know, there's a bu- sometimes there's just a buzz. Like I walked in this morning and there was a buzz and I was, I was loving it, the energy this morning. There's a, sometimes there's a buzz. This Passover, there was a buzz. People were excited. They were excited about the Passover and coming up to Jerusalem, but they were also excited about the fact that Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. It was spreading throughout uh, the, the, all the region and and so uh, if you think about Jerusalem's not a large city, I, 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 apparently there may have been 20 or 30,000 that lived in Jerusalem, um, but, but at the time of the Passover, the week leading up to the Passover, literally Josephus, who was contemporary with the gospel authors, he said the city would swell to over 2 million. So if you can imagine a small city and it's suddenly there's a swelling of people coming from all over Israel and families would come. Some people say that might be an exaggeration, but we know there were hundreds of thousands of people that came. So imagine then this city, hundreds of thousands of people coming to visit, and every family that comes, they're bringing a lamb. They're bringing a lamb to sacrifice in Jerusalem for the week. So there's a buzz already because of the Passover. There's a buzz because Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And also, too, there's, they don't know this, Um, But we know it's an interesting, this is the most important Passover ever because this is the week Jesus Christ would be crucified. So giving you the context of everything that's happening, um, people were excited. They were coming to Jerusalem and were even told they were going to Bethany. Bethany is a little town of two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And so they would come to Jerusalem, but maybe take a detour and go to Bethany because that's where Jesus was. And it's also where Lazarus was. And the Bible says they were coming. They wanted to get a glimpse, not only of the one who raised him from the dead, Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. They've heard he's alive and they want to see him themselves. And that's what brings us to our text here in John 12. Verse 12 is where we're going to begin. So if you're able to stand, would you stand out of respect of God's word as we read John chapter 12, verse 12. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem, and you may recognize this part of the story. John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast 
when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record, their witnesses. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. That's how much of a buzz there is about Jesus. The Pharisees are saying the world is gone after him. Look at verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir... We would see Jesus. What a request. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, and here's our key text, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus knew what's coming, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And this is interesting. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw men, all men unto me. This said, he said, signifying what death he should die. There's so much to unpack here, and we don't have time to do all of it, but I want to point out, especially verse 24. Let's read it one, one more time. I'll read it. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. There's a principle there that Jesus Christ applied to himself and he applies to us. And, it, and, and you've heard the phrase, what goes up must come down. It talks about gravity. If gravity is in play, if it goes up, it has to come down. Well, this is a slightly different take. And this one I'm calling what comes up must first go down. What comes up must first go down. And here's the idea. I'm giving this to you early while you're standing and you're still awake. Okay. The idea this morning is before you can enjoy the benefits of the resurrection, you must be willing to embrace the sacrifices of self-denial. Everyone wants the benefits. Everyone wants all the good stuff, but few people are willing to deny themselves enough 
to be able to enjoy them. You can't raise something that hasn't died. Jesus Christ was willing to first die so we could benefit. And if we're going to do, it says in verse, 20, uh, in verse 25 or 26, it says that uh, if where I am, there shall also my servant be. If we're going to be like Christ, we must be willing to die to ourselves before we can experience the benefits of a resurrected life. And I hope that you'll get that this morning. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, bless the reading of your word. Help me to convey it in a clear and efficient manner this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last night, I, um, I, and I haven't watched, I really don't know that I've watched more of, of a little bit of college basketball this year. I am a college basketball fan, and uh, when I can watch it, I do. Last night, I was... I was on the elliptical, and in order to, uh, to, to halfway enjoy the elliptical, I was watching college basketball. It helps me get through it, you know? So I turned on this college basketball game. It was the second half of the Gonzaga and um, UCLA game. And maybe anybody in here watch any part of the game? I'm the only one that even cares. Okay, all right. So if you watch part of the game, you know that Gonzaga and UCLA, it's a, it's, it's a mismatch on paper. UCLA is the 11 seed. Gonzaga is the one seed. Gonzaga is undefeated. They haven't lost all season. They're the number one overall seed in the whole tournament. UCLA is an 11 seed. They, they've beaten a number one. They've beaten a number two. They're not supposed to be here. But I turned on the second half of the game and it's a one point game. So I started watching it and I, was, I watched most of the second half. There were, I think, 19 lead changes. It was one of those games going back and forth, back and forth. And so it comes down to the end of the game. UCLA is down by two and their best player brings the ball up and he drives to the basket and he, may, he tries to make a shot. He misses it. He gets his own rebound and goes right back up and with three seconds left, ties the ball game. Everyone assumes, okay, this game, um, actually, uh, this game's over. You know, this, this game is not going to go any further. Uh, no, it's going to be overtime. They're going to go into the, the extended periods. It went into overtime. I mean, it was an exciting game. By the, at the end of the game, there's just a few seconds left. Gonzaga gets the ball. UCLA just tied the game. A freshman named Jalen Suggs, freshman, he's 18 or 19 years old. He gets the ball, and there's just a few seconds. Those guys, though, they're taller, a little taller than me, so they can... It takes them like three steps to get past half court. He gets the ball. He runs his three steps. You know, I'm still down by the baseline. He runs his three steps and, and pulls up just be, basically between the three-point line and the half-court line. And he pulls up and shoots the ball while the ball's in the air. The buzzer goes off. The ball hits the backboard. And he banks it in to win the game and go to the championship game. This was the final four game. The crowd went wild. Uh, I mean, the crowd that was there. The cardboard cutouts weren't all that excited, but the crowd was excited and, and his teammates, they rushed the floor and he went and I watched him. He went and he ran over to the, the scoreboard and he stood up on the scoreboard like this. You know, that's what, I guess that's what people do now. If you want to, like, if I ever preach a good message the next time, I'm like, yes. That's how you celebrate now. Or a good special, I should have, after that, answers Christ, been like, yes. Did you hear that one? Okay. That was certainly not in my notes, okay? So he runs over, he stands up on the scoreboard, the table, and he's looking at everyone. Everyone's running after him and grabbing him and excited. And I read his interview afterwards, and I thought, 
in my mind while I was watching him do that, I was like, he's probably dreamed of that moment his whole life. I mean, he's a, a college basketball player. You know that he, and as a kid, he probably practiced game-winning shots like that. He probably in his mind rehearsed what he was going to do when he got up on the scores, the, the table. He probably thought, I've seen Kobe Bryant do that. I've seen all of my heroes. That's what they do. I'm going to do that if I ever have, that ever happens to me. And he did it. And sure enough, I read his interview and here's what he said. Man, that is something that you practice on your mini hoop as a kid or in the gym, just messing around. And to be able to do that, it's crazy. And I, and I thought, you know, every, every kid playing basketball wants to be on the scorer's table. They want to rise. They want the moment of glory. They want to be able to look. They want to see a shot go in the basket and win the game to go to the championship. They want to, they, everybody wants to be in that position. He's dreamed of it as a kid. But, you know, you realize, though, he wouldn't have been in that position had he not put in the work. See, Jalen Suggs, and I don't know much about him, he seems like a good kid, but what I do know is to be where he's at, yes, he's got natural ability, but he also has had to put in hours and hours and years of hard work to get where he is. You don't rise until you're first willing to go down. You don't have all the glory. You don't get all the good stuff and all the benefits unless you're first willing to humble yourself and dig in and, and work hard. And guys in professional sports, they've been through it. They, they know what it takes. And, you know, sometimes, and I think that's what's happening, the buzz in Jerusalem, everyone's like, hey, he raised, him. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Let's go see him. They're excited about the good stuff. They, they're excited about all the, I mean, it's, you know, if we're thinking about Easter, they're excited about the Easter egg hunt. You know, they're excited about the candy. They're excited about the basket. But what, what they are, were missing is what it was going to take for, for the good stuff to happen. You see, you don't, it doesn't just come to you. You don't just get to enjoy all the benefits. There are some sacrifices along the way. What, what goes up or what comes up must first go down. And this Passover over week, it was buzzing. They were excited. And if you think about it, they're excited because of a resurrection. They're excited about the raising of Lazarus. All they can think is, let's get close to the one who can make that happen. Let's go see him up close. He comes into Jerusalem. They line the city streets and they're waving palm branches and they're thinking, I want to be close to him. As he comes into Jerusalem, they're saying Hosanna, which means save us. They're calling him the king. You know what they really believe? At this point, Israel was under the oppression of the Roman government. They, they weren't under control of themselves. They weren't a sovereign state. They were under, under the control of Rome. And, and when he was coming in, riding that, that, that little ass, as he was walking into the street, or dry, walk, riding the streets, they were lining the streets saying, Hosanna, they're waving palm branches. You know what they're thinking? This is our king, and he is going to free us from the Romans. This is our king, and he is going to, to break the bonds of Rome. That's what they thought. Little did they know, he hadn't come to break the bonds of Rome. He had come to break the bonds of sin. And they missed it. They, they weren't understanding that. They were excited. They were all abuzz because of what he could do. But they didn't realize what he was about to have to do. 
So these Greeks come to him in verse 20, and they have a very sincere request. It says, there were certain Greeks among them that came to worship at the feast. We don't know if these Greeks were, were converts. We don't know if they're just curious. Maybe they wanted just to come see what the Passover is like. Maybe they had heard about Christ. Maybe they heard about Lazarus. They're, they're here at the Passover, and they're, it says they came to worship. And they come to, to Philip. And by the way, Philip is a, is a Greek name. So they come to him, and I think that's interesting that if we're going to reach those outside Eastside Baptist Church, we need to relate to them on some level. They come to Philip and they say, sir, we would see Jesus. What a request. It's a very, it's a very sincere request. I, I truly believe that they wanted to see him. And, and so it's, it's interesting. This is a turning point in the, in the New Testament. Because it, to this point in the ministry of Christ... Every time something happened, Jesus Christ would say, would say the hour has not come. The hour is not from the very first miracle. When he, we turn the water into wine at the wedding feast, um, he said, the hour's not come. I'll do the, I'll do the miracle, but this isn't, this isn't the culmination. The hour's not come. The hour's not come. The hour's not come. But notice when we get here, he says, the hour's come. It's almost like the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks are Gentiles. And, and understand, Jesus Christ was a Jew. He, 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 was, he was ministering to the Jews. He was trying to reach Israel. And they had largely rejected him. So the Greeks, the Gentiles come along. And this time he says, uh, okay, the hour has come. It's like, it's like this triggered the change in his focus. And he knew this would happen. I mean, he's omniscient and he knows what's happening. But the Gentiles come to him and he says, the hour is come. And, and this is a parallel. I think maybe, you know, there are people that have come to see Jesus this morning. You know, Easter, Easter brings people out that don't normally seek Jesus. A resurrection brings people out that aren't normally seeking Jesus. And, and you may say that, you know, that may apply to you this morning. You, you may be here this morning and you don't normally come to church or you don't normally seek Jesus, but this morning by you being here and whether or not, I don't know your motive or your reason for being here, but in some ways you've come like these Greeks and you're saying, sir, I would see Jesus. Let, let, let's see Jesus. And I'm telling you, um, you, you may think, well, I don't really know. I don't understand all this. I'm not really buying all of it. I understand that completely. But if you will come truly seeking Jesus, Hebrews chapter 11 says that he is a, God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if you've come this morning with sincerity and you have the sincere request to say, Lord, let me see you. God, let me find you. He will make himself known. And if that's your request this morning, then I'm telling you, as somebody who has found Jesus, it's not about me, it's about what he's done. I'm telling you, I've never once been disappointed. Amen. Jesus is available and he wants to be found. So they come to Philip and Andrew, they say we would see Jesus. That's the sincere request. But I want you to see, though, there's a surprising response. Look at verse 23 of John 12. It says, Jesus answered them and you know what I would say? Oh, sure, let him in. You know, I want to talk to him. No, he says, no, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. The hour is come. He says, there's a switch. It's no longer about the, the, just the Jews. He says, the Gentiles coming to seek me have turned a switch on. And listen, what he's saying is um, the hour has come and the Gentiles, they may, they may see me now or not, but pretty soon they're going to see me. The whole world will see me. I'll be lifted up. 
he says. The whole world will very soon get a glimpse of me and I will make what I have available to all the world. By the way, if you're not a Jew this morning, if you're a Gentile, which applies to most of us, be thankful that he opened the door. Be thankful that he said in this moment, the hour has come and and if they want to see me, pretty soon I'll be lifted up. And not just in glory, I'll be lifted up on a cross. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And here's where we start to come to the truth from the text this morning. Jesus Christ would soon be glorified. He would rise from the dead. He would ascend back to heaven. He would send send his disciples to preach the gospel. And many, many, many Gentiles besides just these Greeks would hear the gospel and be saved. He would return to the right hand of his father, his rightful place, and glory is coming. But he makes it clear, though, before the glory comes. Listen, I really want you to get the transition as we come into this this morning. Jesus Christ makes makes it clear. He says, yes, the the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But listen, something else is going to happen first. Before I'm glorified, before I can run and stand up on the table... Something has to be done before that. You don't get to rise unless you first go down. He says, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So he goes into a farming illustration. No, he says, the hour has come. The son of man shall be glorified. And all the disciples say, yes. And then he says, verily, verily, wait. You got to hear what I'm about to say. Verily, verily, this is very important is what he's saying. They're verily, verily, except a corn of wheat die. Except a corn of wheat first die and fall into the ground. It abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He uses a farming illustration. And, and he said, and it's something they would have understood. It's something Ryan understands. That was the one amen. When I said farmers, he said amen. <laughs> Meaning a wheat grain. What he's saying is that a wheat grain will never produce unless it's first planted in the ground. Amen. See, what comes up must first go down. And I have here a lily bulb. Oh, yeah. and, and boy, that's scraggly, isn't it? It looks like me before my haircut last night, a little bit. You know, it's not really much to look at, is it? It's not really all that impressive. It's just a bulb. It's just, I mean, it's a, grain, it's a corn of wheat. It's essentially, it's, it, it's a seed. And it's not much to look at. It, it's really not all that impressive. And, and the, the truth is, if I put it here on the pulpit and I come back next week, it, nothing will have changed. And I can leave it there as long as I want. And all it will ever do is, and and let's just assume it doesn't rot. I know it will. But all it will ever be, if unless it gets planted, all it will ever be is this bulb. It will only always ever be a lily bulb. So I know that's true. So one day I decide to plant it in some dirt. So I put it down in the ground. And when I do, it looks like I'm killing it. It's like, it looks like it's dying Looks like that's the end. And I play taps and then I walk away and it's done. So I put it in the ground. But what I don't know is what's happening inside the dirt is this little, little lily bulb. There's inside of it. There's some kind of an embryo. There's some, a seed. There's something that actually is alive and, it's, and it pokes itself out somehow. Okay? It's a miracle of nature. By the way, we, we, it happens billions of times 
all over the world every year. We just take it for granted. But it's a miracle that God has put this process into place. And this thing goes in the dirt and this little, this little shoot comes out and that maybe those are the roots and the roots, they seek into the soil and they start to soak up the nutrients. They soak up the water that's in the soil. Then on the other side, maybe out of the top, a, a green shoot comes out and it starts heading up toward the sunlight. I mean, don't tell me about evolution. I mean, I mean God made this thing happen. And it's heading up toward the sunlight. It's heading up through the dirt. And as soon as it gets there, it starts soaking in the sun. So its roots are going down. The stem is growing, is going up. It's soaking in the sun. It's taking in the water. It's taking in the nutrients. And it's starting to grow. And pretty soon, it, it starts to become a plant that you could recognize. And I'm thankful that this lily is here this morning. I'm going to use it as an illustration. And I'm going to set it right there. See, pretty soon, this bulb turns into that plant and pretty soon what's happening here on the inside I don't know how it all works I'm not a farmer Um, I'm, I'm a preacher and so this is my limited experience but what I do know is that pretty soon this flower will produce something that could someday be this and that bulb could be reproduced and pretty soon there could be lilies everywhere because this one bulb died This one bulb went into the ground. It was willing to say no to itself. It was willing to go underground in the dirt, in the dark, and be willing to, was willing to say no in self-denial and turn into something that could turn out like this. And it comes down to this truth today, and I really just want you to get it, is the miracle of plant reproduction can take you from a bulb to a lily in the plant world. But in order for it to happen, this bulb must first go into the ground. For all intents and purposes, it must die. If it's never planted, it will never be more than this. If it's never buried, it will never reproduce. If it never dies, it will never rise. And Jesus takes that concept in verse 24 and he likens it to what he's about to do. See, he knows what lies ahead. He knows that he's going to go into the garden and one of his own will betray him. Judas will betray him there in the garden and he'll bring all the centurions and all the soldiers and the Pharisees and the leaders and they'll come arrest him in the garden and they'll take him and they'll strip him of his clothes and they'll torture him. They'll beat him and slap him and they'll take a crown of thorns and they'll put it on his, on his head and drive it deep into his skull. Jesus Christ knows this is coming. He knows that he'll be tortured. He knows that he knows that he'll be mocked. He knows that very soon they're going to mock him and call him names and they're going to challenge him and they're going to make fun of him. They're going to, they, he knows that shame is coming. He knows that he'll be dragged naked through the city. He'll be asked to carry his own cross. Then they'll take him to the cross, to the place where he'll be crucified. And they'll nail him to the cross. They'll nail his hands. They'll nail his feet. And he'll be on that cross when they lift it up and drop it into the ground. And all of his, all of his joints, he'll be, well, his joints will be pulled apart and, and he'll experience writhing pain. And he'll be naked in front of everyone that he loves and knows. Jesus knows that's coming. He knows that he'll eventually, before he dies, he knows that his own father, God the Father who's in heaven and is holy, God the Father will turn his back on his son because of the sins that Jesus Christ is bearing for the whole world. He knows that's coming. 
He knows that he will eventually die and they'll place his body in a tomb. He doesn't even have his own place to be buried. He didn't even have a place to lay his head while he was alive, much less have a place to be buried. And Joseph of Arimathea will go and beg his body before Pilate and he'll take his body and put him in a tomb that's not his. They'll put a large stone in front of it. Then they're going to protect it with guards because they think his, his disciples are going to come and steal his body. He knows this is coming. He knows the pain that lies ahead. He knows the misery. He knows the mocking. He knows the shame. He knows the torture. He knows all of it. And after he dies and he's buried, his disciples are scattered and, and all hope will seem lost and they'll think it's all over. It'll seem terrible. But, it, but he knows that this is part of the father's plan. When he says the hour is come, he's thinking, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He's acknowledging that God the Father's plan includes his death. And we read about that in verses 31 through 33, uh, down at the end, toward the end of the chapter. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He knows. And you say, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, Jesus knew he had to die to produce life in us. What what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. First, God is holy and we are not. And, and, and God, because he's holy and we're sinners, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, then our sin will always keep us from God if nothing happens. As a bulb, if nothing ever happens, we'll always be what we are. That's right. And so without the death of the bulb, without Jesus Christ dying for us, our sin would always prevent us from heaven. We would never be able in our own strength to work our way to heaven. And Jesus Christ knew this. Only a perfect sacrifice would be enough. Only a, only a sinless payment would be enough. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Every year, listen, every year, those Jewish families, they would take a lamb and they would go up to Jerusalem with the lamb and have to kill a lamb for the sins of their family. But guess what had to happen the next year? They have to go right back up every year. And so God is holy. We're not. God requires a perfect sacrifice. And the perfect sacrifice was his son, Jesus Christ. His blood that he shed on the cross, the death that he died for us, gives us access that we never would have had before. Because honestly, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. You know who deserves to pay for our sin? You and me. I deserve to pay for my own sin. The wages of sin is death. I deserve to be the one dying. And yet my sacrifice wouldn't be enough because I'm not sinless. Jesus Christ, who is sinless, shed his blood and died. And he paid for my sin debt. Praise his name. He died for me. He died in my place. And it's a perfect substitute. He did what I could never, ever do. And here's the thing. God loves you too much to just allow you to die in your sin without any hope of being saved. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth or proved his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God is holy, we are not. A perfect sacrifice was required that we couldn't pay but Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice and he died for us in our place and all we have to do is believe the message and receive his son as savior and we can go to heaven for eternity and you tell me that I mean you tell me that sounds like a deal that you're going to pass up I mean God went to those links for your soul 
He went to those links so you could be saved. That's why Jesus' death had to take place. There would have been no option to take care of our sin. There would have been no option to take care of our problem unless a corn of wheat, unless someone died, he knew he had to go to the cross and pay the sin debt. And as we receive the gift of eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know what we're doing? We're proving his illustration. Because as he was buried in the ground, it looked like death. But just like a lily, he had to be buried before he could rise. But listen, as he rose, the message of what he'd done began to spread. And those Greeks that came to him at first, suddenly, someday, maybe years later, the gospel message came to their village. And someone's telling them that, hey, a man died. He's God's son. All man, all God, but he died in your place so that you could go to heaven and you don't have to die in your sins anymore. And so what Jesus prophesied came true. He said, if a, if a corn of wheat uh, refuses to die, it abideth alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. You know what that much fruit is? You and me. Yes. Amen. Because Jesus died... We have an option to spend eternity in heaven with God himself. Listen, but what, first, what comes up must first go down. Bear with me. We're almost done, so just hang in here. Christ had to die before fruit could be produced. He had to submit to death before his resurrection could take place. Listen, here, just here it is. Jesus Christ's death is pictured right here and right here. He had to be willing to do this, bury the bulb, before this could be produced. And this is a reality of salvation. He even says it, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Listen, you can embrace this life all you want. You can. It's your choice. You can, the life that you live, the, the sins that you carry, the things that you're involved in, um, whether or not they're pleasing to God, no one will force you to change what you do. You can embrace the life that you have and you can enjoy it to the fullest of your abilities and you can refuse God's offer your whole life. You can, it's your choice. But listen, if you do that, all you will ever be is what you are. So listen, all, all the things that you think are good about your life, I get it. I, I know we, we tend to be a little bit self-righteous or maybe we think we can do it on our own. But if you try to earn heaven without Jesus Christ, all you will ever only always be is a bulb. That's it. You must be willing to die to your plans for salvation. You must be willing to say, God, listen, I, I, I tried my best and I know I can't earn it. You have to be willing to die to the thought that you could work your way to heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But a lot of people, and maybe even in this room today, they're trusting in their works to get them to heaven. You have to be willing to die to that because all you will ever be, if you're trying in your own effort, all you will ever only be is a bulb. But if you would be willing to die to your efforts, die to your attempts at heaven, to die to your pride and say, God, I can't do it. There's no way it's impossible for me. If you'd be willing to die to yourself and bury those self, the, the, the self 
that, you had, that you're embracing. And he said he can turn you from this to this. Amen. You can go from a bulb to a lily in salvation if you'd be willing to just deny yourself in your own efforts. But it's also true, he says, it's true in service. Meaning, he says, if they come and follow me, uh, listen, if they'll follow me and serve me, then my father will honor them. But you also have to say no to your life. And there are plenty of Christians, and I imagine there's a lot of believers, even in this room this morning, and you're trying to live the life that you want to live, but you know to follow Christ is going to require you to make some sacrifices. Sacrifices like, I don't know, um, coming to church on Sundays. I'm telling you, that's a hard decision. I mean, it's tough. I mean, who doesn't like weekends? And when you have weather like this, on the other hand, Jesus Christ says, no, a follower, a true committed disciple follower would be willing to deny himself and his desires so that he can do what what I'm asking him to do. You know, there's a lot of things that we want in our lives that we're going to have to say no to if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. This is a true principle in salvation. It's a true principle in our service. And listen, if you will die to your desires and live the life that God has laid out in his word, I'm just telling you today, he can take you from this to that. He can take you from a bulb to a lily. He can take, transform what is right now is an empty and tough and maybe, maybe even a miserable life. And he can transform it from this to that. But you're going to have to be willing to deny yourself. Right now, too many people are living their own life. And, and I'm just telling you, if, if all you ever do is live the way you want to, all you'll ever only always be is a bulb and yet Jesus Christ wants to transform you from a bulb to a lily we've got some in this room this morning you're carrying a burden of sin and you know it's something that you've got to get rid of it it, it owns you it's a sin of anger or the sin of lust or there's a sin of bitterness in your life or there's something that you know is not where it's supposed to be and really it owns you And right now, unless you're willing to die to yourself and do things God's way, all you'll ever only be is a bulb. And yet, Romans 6.14 says, sin doesn't have to have dominion over you. You realize when you were saved, Jesus Christ's body, you were placed into Jesus Christ's body. And so supernaturally, divinely, I don't even know how it works. You were placed into his body when he was buried and you were raised with him in the resurrection. So you know what that tells you is that whatever sin you're carrying this morning, you don't have to carry it out. He gives you victory over the sin. So the anger or the lust or the rebellion or whatever it is that you're facing this morning, listen, you don't have to stay a bulb. He can transform you if you'd be willing to humble yourself. I'm thinking about marriages in this room and in your own strength and in your own wisdom, there's a lot of, I mean, it's easy to be just kind of an average husband. And if your default is, I'm just going to do it like, like I think is natural, or I'm going to do it like I think is the way to do it, and I don't really need help, and that's fine. But, but right now, your marriage probably feels a little bit like a bulb. But if you'd be willing to submit to God's way for your marriage, you realize he can take the worst marriage, the, the toughest marriage, the toughest circumstances. He can take the bulbs this morning. And he can transform them into something beautiful if you'd be willing to just set your pride aside and follow his word because there are recipes for a good marriage in God's word. 
For husbands and wives, listen, you don't have to live a bulb. It can be a lily. Maybe there's some weakness in your life or some shortcoming. And you say, God couldn't use me. I could never overcome this. I'm not, I mean, I'm not smart enough. I'm too shy. I don't have confidence. I'm just not sure God could ever use me. I have these problems. I've got a physical thing. I just, I just don't think, no, listen, God, they're, they're, the world is full of bulbs that God has transformed into lilies. And he can take you from what you think that you'll only ever always be. And if you'll humble yourself and die to that pride. And if you'll, if you'll die to doing things in your own strength. And let him be the one that strengthens you. He can take you from somebody who's just a bulb. To somebody who's making a difference in people's lives. If you'd be willing to die to your pride and self. This truth has so many applications. Listen, I just want you to think about the biggest challenge in your life right now. What's the hardest thing you face? What's the most difficult thing in your life right now? What's the, what's the one thing that anytime it gets brought up, it's just a pit in your stomach. And you go to bed at night and you, just, oh, you can't hardly sleep because of it. And you feel like it's the one thing holding you back. It's the one challenge you don't have an answer to. It's the one thing that you think will never go away. What's the one thing? Listen, whatever it is that you can think of, whatever it is on your mind that you think will always keep you a bold, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then he can take that problem and fix it just like that. He can take the bulb that you are carrying, the bulb that is your life, and turn you into something beautiful. Now, that's figurative for the men out there, by the way. Listen, you may be here this morning thinking, God can't overcome what I face. I get it. It seems overwhelming. But two things. Listen, focus back in here. There's two things. If you think I can't fix, if God can't fix this, There's two things. No, listen, if Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross, do you really think there's anything in your life he's not willing to go all the way to the end to to help you fix? Second, if Jesus Christ was able to die and rise again, do you honestly think there's anything in your life he's unable to help you fix? So here's what I'm saying to you this morning. You have a God who's proven himself to be willing and able. And if you would submit to his plan, there's nothing he can't help you overcome. You just have to be willing to die to your plans. You have to be willing to die to your pride this morning. You have to be willing to die to your answers. Die to your efforts. Die to your sins. Die to your insufficiencies. and, And trust the one who died for you and then conquered death. If you come to the end of yourself, he can transform you from this to this. So this morning, uh, I'm just letting you know, a bulb must be willing to go down before a lily can come up. Go down as a sinner this morning, you can come up saved. You can go down as a bad husband and, and somebody who hasn't done things right, but if you'll humble yourself before God and your spouse, you can come up as the husband God wants you to be. Or the wife God wants you to be. You go down as a rebellious teenager, which I'm sure we have some in here. You can humble yourself before your parents and God and come up doing things God's way. And you can be a person, a young person that pleases God, which there aren't very many anymore. You can go down as a selfish Christian. Go down, humble yourself, die to yourself and come up as someone who makes a difference in people's lives besides your own. Listen, the resurrection makes a difference. And there are lots of benefits. 
but what comes up must first go down. In other words, you, before you get to enjoy the benefits of the resurrection, you have to be willing to embrace the sacrifices of self-denial. Say no to yourself and yes to God. And if Jesus was willing and able to die for your sake and give you all the benefits of his resurrection, would you be willing to die to yourself so you can enjoy them? They're available. This is available. But it takes humility and confession of sin and a denial of self. And it sounds hard until you remember that he can take you from this to this. And if that's the case, it seems like a no-brainer this morning. If you're tired of being a bulb, die to yourself. Submit to God. And he can transform you into a lily. Let's, let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We have a, a verse of invitation. And as you're standing, I'm just going to ask you a couple simple questions this morning. Do you know for sure that if you died today that you'd be on your way to heaven? Is that something that, you're, that, you're, that you know 100% for sure? That you say, if I died this morning, I know that heaven is my eternal home. I know that. If that's the case, as the instrument begins to play, Ms. Kath, go ahead and begin playing. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.